Well, thank you, my friend, Dr. Beakey, and uh, what, a, what a privilege it is for me to be here and to see um, more of the work of PRTS. I've been a fan uh, from a distance for a while, and I know you don't take for granted that you have a, a wonderful pastor who all of those kind and inflated things he said uh, would be said of him, but uh, it's a privilege to be with you, and now we're ready to begin that, now that Miss Mary is here, so... Uh, I'm glad you're here. Our theme uh, for this conference is the gospel of grace. My title is the only one that doesn't fit thematically, uh, at least uh, externally, but I think you will see that uh, it does fit. And what I want to talk to you is about the earliest preaching of the gospel of grace found in the book of Acts. Martin Luther regarded the book of Acts as a beautiful mirror in which one beholds, of course, sola fides justificat. And the fathers also admired the contents of the book of Acts on a variety of subjects, and a great testimony is given to apostolic doctrine, apostolic practice. We see in the book of Acts the fundamental outlining of the mission of the church, the government of the church, the organization of the church, the practices of the church, the prayers of the church, and the preaching of the early church. And we see an arsenal full of artillery against the Antichrist. And as such, the book of Acts instructs us, if ever a source does, on how the apostles preached the gospel, calling for faith and repentance, proffering the gospel of grace overtly or promiscuously, as the Puritans styled it. Early in the book of Acts, Sermons publicly addressed topics ranging from the sovereignty of God to the power of the Holy Spirit to the importance of preaching God's Word. I don't know if you've reviewed the early part of the book of Acts, which I will with you today recently, but in the book of Acts there are eight sermons by Peter, nine by Paul, one lengthy sermon by Stephen, and a short one by James. Twenty-five percent of the book of Acts is taken up with preaching. So it is certainly a model for us, and remember this is also in the mission context of the early church. Fifty years ago, uh, when uh, I was a seminary student, I Howard Marshall's book, Luke, historian and theologian, uh, concluded a significant commentary on how much of the book of Acts was concerned with public speaking, with speeches, with sermons. And it was an eye-opener. For many of us, it shouldn't have been. Uh, It's only to our shame that that was not immediately detected sooner. But I, Howard Marshall, stood in the gap. And there are other classic essays that I'll mention by F.F. Bruce and Herman Ritterboss uh, below. But Howard Marshall's uh, uh, great apologetic for Luke's record in the Acts says that the, the book of Acts is both history and theology. It is kerygma, preaching, and martyria testimony. And there's no false disjunction that is needed. Marshall believes that the preaching by Jesus in Luke is continued thematically in Acts. And I believe that there is that continuity. The Christology of the book of Acts, early in Peter's sermons, which lifts up Christ, according to Howard Marshall, has four seminal points. First, that He is the exalted Lord. Secondly, that He is Jesus the Savior, including His atoning work. Thirdly, the coming of Christ 
is spoken of, and the presence of Christ in the Spirit. And along the way, uh, both Luke, which is a book of history, and Acts, which is a book of theology, are concerned essentially with mission. And with Luke pointing us to the direction of the church's mission, there is also, in the Gospel of Luke, and in his second volume, in what I call sometimes the Gospel of Acts, there's a greater emphasis on repentance than there is in any of the other Gospels. A clarion that is sounded for unbelievers as well as to those who are in Israel. F.F. Bruce in 1942, in a classic lecture delivered to students at Oxford, uh, which was entitled The Speeches and the Acts of the Apostles, categorized four types of sermons. Just to, to have a framework for you as you think about these, there were evangelistic sermons in Acts, there were deliberative sermons, there were apologetic sermons, and there were hortatory sermons, according to F.F. Bruce. He detects and believes that there was a common Aramaic source for much of the early church preaching that Luke in his research discovered. F.F. Bruce, agreeing with C.H. Dodd, viewed Luke as very close to the primitive source for these messages, not a distant literary editor. To wit, when we further observe the most, of, most of the forms of the kerygma in Acts, they show in their language a strong Aramaic coloring, and we recognize in these that these have the fairly direct touch with the primitive tradition of the Jesus of history. So the speeches in the early chapters of the book of Acts can be our model for how the earliest church preached, how they preached the gospel of grace. And I suggest to you is that these is for my talk that we understand that in those earliest chapters of the book of Acts, the gospel of grace, as it is truly to be understood and defined, is depicted for us in those sermons. In 1961, if you jet forward a little bit, Herman Ritterboss had another important lecture, a classic lecture, The Speeches of Peter and the Acts of the Apostles, in which he restricts himself to a study of the preaching of Peter in the opening ten chapters of the book of Acts. And uh, uh, Ritterboss believes that Peter's preaching follows more of the evangelistic expansion of the church as it goes out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And in Ritterboss's study, I just want to acquaint you with his Christology. I've mentioned to you uh, Howard Marshall's. Uh, I will have my own in just a moment, but I want to mention to you Ritterboss's Christology that he sees uh, comprised of six elements. And this is the, the, the preaching of Christ in the book of Acts according to Herman Ritterboss. First, it includes that Christ was ordained by God. Secondly, it touches on his miracles. Thirdly, his death and resurrection. Fourthly, the agreement with the Scriptures. Fifthly, his exaltation in heaven. And sixthly, the apostles' authority as witnesses. So we have a clinic, we have a laboratory, if we will simply avail ourselves to it. In the earliest chapters of the book of Acts, if you want to know what the church preached, how the church preached, we have that demonstration for us. And it is certainly surmised that those sermons were not for the instruction only for that generation of the church, but were meant as recorded, as inspired Scripture, to be modeled by all generations. The sheer amount of verbiage gives us ample material to observe how the early church, with the preaching of the apostles, exhibited and offered the gospel of grace. Our theme, it was to fulfill our Lord's words of his early sermon, 
putting the light in full display and not under a bushel basket. Now, in my short uh, message to you today, I hope to review three things with you. First, I want to spend a little bit of time reviewing and, and thumbnail sketch the earliest sermons uh, prior to Acts 13. Secondly, I want to reduce those sermons to six points of repeated homiletic in, uh, emphasis, and finally talk about the free offer of the gospel emanating from these themes. So you'll, you'll need to listen closely, and I know this is the, the sleepy hour after lunch, um, so uh, you, you'll have to listen closely uh, to hear some of my comments on the free offer of the gospel of grace, but I, I hope to conclude uh, after laying the foundation of that. First, to begin with, what are the six themes? My, my um, reckoning is slightly different from Ritterboss's, slightly different from Bruce's, slightly different from Howard Marshall's, uh, but as I have studied through the book of Acts in the early chapters, I have come up with six themes that are repeated. First, there is a citation or confirmation of the Old Testament. In five of the six earliest sermons, there are references to the Old Testament, which I'll lay out for you momentarily. Secondly, the second theme is that Jesus is the Messiah. You see his, the references to his Messiahship, that he is our Savior, as a theme repeated throughout these early chapters of the book of Acts. That's part of the gospel of grace. Thirdly is the resurrection of Jesus. It's a theme that's, that's no surprise to you, but if you want to know what is the gospel of grace and, and what does it include, the resurrection of Jesus, the early church would tell us is an essential part of the gospel of grace. And then there are three others I'll mention. Number four is moral guilt. Nearly every one of these early sermons, particularly in the earliest part of the book of Acts, in the preaching by the apostles on the free offer, the gospel of grace, almost always begin with seeking to establish the moral guilt of the hearers. That's a fourth theme. Related to that is a fifth theme, a call to repentance. It's common in the book of Acts to see calls to repentance. And sixthly, uh, there are references to the patriarchs, uh, which was an important part of the preaching. I'll go over some of these. Uh, I'd like to spend the bulk of our time uh, this afternoon <clears throat> looking at chapters 2, 3, 4, and 7, uh, because those are some of the earliest sermons. And so we'll look at that for time's sake. And, and you might ask, before we, before we plunge into that, why use those three as a microcosm? And my answer is in three points. First, these are the earliest sermons preserved for us. That is, if we wish to find pristine models that are less affected by culture or tradition, we certainly have those in these early public preachings by the apostles. Secondly, they were also very public, exhibiting a spontaneity, what F.F. Bruce calls a crudity of style, which speaks against striving for rhetorical brilliance. And it buttresses the authenticity of these early sermons. The unplanned, unprepared nature of these sermons in particular should give us some measure of confidence in the integrity of these sermons. They are still good models for us today. And then thirdly, uh, since time is short, I will just give you a summary statement. I do not find an incongruity between these earliest sermons and either the later ones in Luke's second volume or in the Gospel of Luke and Jesus' preaching itself. I think you will find the very same themes repeated in there. So uh, if we look at the first chapter of Acts, uh, to lay the foundation, there is a 
prelude of hermeneutics in Acts chapter 1, before the first sermon is preached, in the selection of the replacement for Judas, there is an Old Testament hermeneutic that is presented, that is modeled in the church, the gospel of grace, without question, relied on the Old Testament in looking for the successor to Judas. Uh, Peter, as he speaks, first draws on Psalm 69, 25, and then he draws on Psalm 109, uh, taking what was originally a Davidic plea for God to oppose his unrighteous contemporaries and applying that to the upcoming act in which a successor apostle would be chosen. And so these apostles proceed on scriptural warrant to elect a successor, a replacement for Judas. And in the very beginning, you have to see clearly in the early church that their, their belief in our standard is based on the Word of God. The Old Testament interpreted the events unfolding in the New Testament, and that was a hermeneutical premise. It's not one of my points. That was a hermeneutical assumption behind the apostolic preaching of the gospel of grace and, of course, Jesus' own sermons cited and confirmed the Old Testament often. Look with me if you uh, have your Bibles at the second chapter of Acts at Pentecost, and we will spend a little bit more time developing uh, these themes, and I'll try to point to those uh, repetitive notes uh, that are mentioned uh, in these, in these opening, uh, opening themes. <clears throat> um, there is in uh, the book of Acts chapter 2, a model sermon delivered in public. And as you can detect, I view the sermons of Jesus where he publicly offered the gospel methodologically to be in continuity with how the apostles followed our Lord's style that they had seen and heard from him or since we happen to be in Grand Rapids, like Richard Muller, who does not find a cognitive chasm between Calvin and his post-Reformation disciples in substance, we do not find a break between the promiscuous preaching of grace by Jesus or by his disciples. In some in this manner, I don't see much difference between how Jesus approached this issue and it was referred to, well, last night in the messages, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I don't see much difference in that and how the apostles practiced their prophesying. Quickly note some of the many instances in these, in these early chapters where the church is seen communicating God's word in a public forum by preaching. Here in Acts chapter 2 is a sermon. In the next chapter, Acts chapter 3, Peter preaches another sermon. In chapter 4, Peter and John preach before the Sanhedrin. In Acts chapter 5, Peter and the disciples, after they are, are released from jail, are forbidden to preach. And what do they do? In Acts 5.29 and following, they preach in obedience to God. Stephen's last words in Acts chapter 7 are a sermon. Rarely does any chapter in the book of Acts occur in which preaching is not seen and in which the offer of the gospel is not made. And remember, each of these was in a mission setting, seldom in an established church. Isn't that part of our calling in our culture in which Christians may be a distinct minority? Preaching in the book of Acts is only rivaled, you will note, by prayer or by witnessing is the most frequent of human activity. Some 
few acts, and I imagine this seminary is one of the unusual ones, that in the introduction to homiletics has students study how preachers preached in the Bible instead of other textbooks. And if we wish to follow the pattern in Acts, we will necessarily mimic the emphasis of the preaching of the gospel of grace. Now, may I just say as an aside, we live in a day in which preaching is so downplayed that it's, it will be necessary in the coming decades in our churches to recapture some of its vitality. Let me prove this to you. Suppose that we were to uh, exclude this group and call a meeting of any number of Christians in, in Grand Rapids. And we were to challenge that group and say, we want you to start a church. We want you to start a church that will last, a good church or a biblical church. What are the five or six suggested methods that would be discussed? I dare say, unless some of you were involved in that task force, no one would say preaching. We would have a number of programs. We'd have a number of gimmicks. We would uh, be told we needed to have a, a, a really uh, kicking band or a couple of kicking bands, and we needed to have this kind of show, and we needed this kind of art ministry, and we needed this kind of political organization. We needed this kind of social justice outreach. We needed all of these things. We needed Boy Scout, Girl Scouts, transgender, transgender Scouts. Everything except what the early church did, which was preaching. We have become so smart at marketing and demographics as well as programming that we normally exhibit more faith in gimmicks or programs than in preaching or prayer. And to reach people, if you are concerned about reaching a culture or reaching a city or reaching a neighborhood or seeing your church be reformed according to Scripture, you'd be better off following the pattern in the book of Acts and let preaching lead the way. Kevin DeYoung recently cited Martin Lloyd-Jones from a half century ago when he declared that without hesitation the most urgent need of the Christian church today is true preaching. And it is the greatest and most urgent need of the church in any day. Pastors are to be preachers first, not bloggers We must be preachers before we are political pundits or before we're book reviewers or controversialists or social commentators in our age of instant digital access. With immediate digital output, a great many pastors are being pulled away from the center out to the periphery of ministry to be a professional scholar or a weekly columnist or a conservative activist or a community organizer or a social reformer or an expert in criminal reform might be admirable vocations, but the calling of the preacher is to preach. I jokingly told several people over the last year, on a riff of our Lord's Word, wherever two or three are gathered, there is always one epidemiologist It's utterly amazing. Every pastor I know is an expert in health sciences. Every pastor I know wants to write an article, wants to write a book, wants to tell everybody what to do uh, with the COVID crisis. And we simply don't have that expertise and it's above our pay grade. We need more attention to preaching as in the book of Acts than we do to current events. It bears repeating. Let's not 
pursue God's ends by some other means. Let us use his means as well, and we must know them and seek to explicate them. So let's turn our attention, if you will, to Acts chapter 2, to this pristine sermon that God has chosen to leave behind for us as a good example. And, And I will give you three parts of the content of that early sermon in Acts chapter 2. These are three parts of content in the early kerygma or preaching. First, the present, that is Pentecost, is interpreted in light of the Old Testament and prophecy. Even though the Bible is an inspired commentary on the events of our day, nonetheless, the mind of man will take even the clearest revelation of God and pervert it to an attack on God. These are not drunk, as you suppose, as the reaction to the Pentecostal sermon moved John Calvin to observe how monstrous, as well as the sluggishness also of ungodly men, when Satan takes away their mind, if God should openly and visibly descend from heaven, his majesty majesty could scarcely have more effect than this miracle. Rather, what was going on in that opening sermon was what was fully anticipated in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Joel. In this one sermon, in Acts chapter 2, as we move forward, the, the hermeneutical assumption in Acts chapter 1 has, has two references to the Psalter. In this sermon by Peter, he has two additional references to Psalms and also, of course, to the book of Joel. And Peter cites these words that were written centuries earlier from Psalm 16, Psalm 110, from Joel chapter 2, as authoritative and relevant for his own day. And without hesitation and without apology or seeking audience approval first. He will even refer to these, Peter will, that is later as holy men who were born along by the Holy Spirit. And yet Joel, some 800 years earlier, had predicted that the day of the Lord would come. And when it did come, it would be known by the miraculous phenomena that were spoken of in Acts 2, verses 17 through 20, if you will look at those verses. And Peter explains that that is just what has happened at Pentecost. The early church saw itself as the usher of the end times, which they were in then, in the year 30 A.D., Messiah was reigning then and was on his throne, and his last day had begun according to Peter's inspired interpretation of the Old Testament. And so the Old Testament is interpreted, and it is applied to the events of the day. The present is interpreted by the past. That's point one of the preaching. Secondly, there's a centrality in verses 22 through 24 of Acts 2. There's a centrality on the person and work of Jesus Christ in light of God's eternal plan. If you wish to know who Christ is, Uh, in this as a mainstay of early apostolic preaching, verses 22 through 24 of Acts chapter 2 shows Peter explaining the person and work of Christ. And that's the second main point of his sermon, a radical Christology, if you will. Portrays Jesus as fully human in verse 22, as accredited by miracles and wonders and signs in verse 22b. Jesus was a man That sermon said, by whom God worked great and genuine miracles, and he's also the Savior who was decreed to die for the sins of God's people. Here in these verses, we see the church's view of the sovereignty and predestining work of God. It is informative to note when you seek to list 
the facets of the early gospel of grace. That in this first sermon on Pentecost, that sermon was filled with meaty doctrinal substance. Doctrinal preaching was the early preaching. Things like the end times, the work of Christ, predestination. We're not hidden under a bushel as if the church were ashamed of important ideas or had a tiny sliver of a gospel. No, they were publicly proclaimed. This was the whole counsel of God as integral to the church's understanding of the plan and grace of God. Note here in Acts chapter 2 how Jesus fits in with God's preset plan, particularly as Peter preaches to a mixed audience. There are two separate terms that are descriptive in verse 23. First, Jesus' very betrayal by Judas, as horrible as that is, is described as being part of God's set purpose. The Greek word orizo refers to God's intention, design, purpose or thoughtful plan, his divine horizon, which is derived from Orizzo. That's the word that's used for God's decree, his set purpose. Interestingly, out of all of the millions of Christians who have Christ as their Savior, I have never met or heard of one who wishes to deny that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and that it was no accident. Our salvation is too precious to us to even imagine that God would have possibly left that up to chance. It was part of God's set plan. Yes, God decreed for Jesus to die on the cross for us. That was set in stone. That's undisputed and even praiseworthy in the early preaching of the church. But then, of course, our human nature tries to turn around and with an embarrassing inconsistency seeks to argue that God, however, certainly would not predestine certain things about us. It's fine, we believe, for God to pre-plan for Jesus to suffer and to die for us, but we don't seem too fond in practice of the idea that God might interrupt anything in our life by His sovereign predestination. That fair-weather predestination is not what Peter and the early church are speaking of here. Now, you may wonder, and a modern critic might raise the question, why bring up an issue that is so divisive? Peter, in your first sermon, in public, why bring up the P word, predestination? Shouldn't we focus on matters that everybody agrees about. Besides, isn't that issue irrelevant to practical living? Why not focus on something more practical? Peter, if you wish to have a successful movement, I'm sure some homiletics professor, not here but elsewhere, would say, you need to be more audience sensitive. But Peter did not shroud the doctrine of the sovereignty of God even in this early public discourse. On Joel's prediction that your sons will prophesy, John Calvin notes in his commentary that there will not be a few prophets only unto whom God may reveal his secrets, but all men shall be endued with spiritual wisdom, even to prophetical excellency. 
Calvin, and by the way, the rest of my quotes from Calvin, which will, will be uh, quite a few in, in the rest of this uh, address, are taken from his commentary, volume 18. Calvin applied that same far and wide, his term, far and wide outpouring of the Spirit to his own day. God continues to offer, quote, daily unto us all by this same promise without putting any difference. His point is that, as Calvin says, the gospel goes to common people, including women, men, young, and old. And on verse 21 of Acts chapter 2, on the phrase in English, whoever whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, Calvin singles out the word whoever by adding this comment, for God admitteth all men unto himself without exception, and by this means doth he invite them to salvation. He continues to assert that, Calvin says, the gate of salvation is set open unto all men, neither is there any other thing which keepeth us back from entering in, save only our own belief. And I speak of all unto whom God doth make himself manifest by the gospel. Peter and John, James, Stephen, continue to say there were no accidents in this universe. Not even Christ's death, Satan and the world they had conquered with the death of Christ. Satan thought the world had been conquered by the death of Christ, but God knew better. God knew his plan was perfectly on target. His purpose was foreknown. And all of this was worked out in Christ being put to death by being nailed to the cross. And the cross of Christ was not God's plan B. Nor did God see in advance that you and I might perchance believe in Him and say, okay, whatever. I'll elect them to salvation since I see that they will choose me. Such would make salvation depend on something in us, in our faith rather than in the unconditional grace of God. So the three parts of this earliest sermon first are that the Old Testament interprets the the events of today. Secondly, the centrality of Christ. And then thirdly, there's the Old Testament prediction and New Testament fulfillment of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus is mentioned over and over again in these early sermons. That's not a surprise. But it's worth saying that that should be a regular part of our preaching. That should be a common feature, along with the centrality of Christ and along with references to the Old Testament. If you drop down to verse 31 of Acts chapter 2, Peter says that David spoke of the resurrection of Christ. These were witness, we are witnesses of this, he said. Further, God has exalted Christ to the right hand. There's the ascension of Acts 1. The sealing and final proof is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That this was that. The definition that Pentecost, this is that, the beginning of the day of the Lord when Christ is risen and reigning at the right hand of the Father. As Psalm 110 had earlier predicted, the Messiah would on the last day, when all his enemies had been put under his royal feet, sit at the right hand of the Father. Christ was down the throne. And I want you to see, drop down to verse 36, see the, the latter part of the sermon. Notice how short the conclusion to all of us who are regular preachers and pastors, uh, be kinder to your people to follow this model than some models and asking for extra time because Peter cut to the chase 
And when he got to the point, he says, this sermon is going to end. Therefore, he said, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. If you want to have a good sermon, have a quick conclusion, a good conclusion, a memorable conclusion that points to Christ. Let all Israel know. That's where he was leading. That's where Stephen goes in in Acts chapter 7. Stephen gives this long review of Old Testament history. And then he turns the screws and says, but this man that you crucified, God is not worshipped in temples made of hand, and this one that you crucified, Jesus is risen. And you will see the effect in verse 37 of Acts chapter 2. The people were cut to the heart. That means they could not resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They were cut to the heart. You know how it is when people are, are, are cut to the heart. They're, they're really sorry for their sin. Uh, Dr. Salazar used a, a wonderful illustration that we will all be cheating and stealing from him for days to come about his three-year-old son who's splattered with yogurt and, and butter and, and things and how he needs to be clean. If you've had grandchildren, you, you have the same thing. We have a precious granddaughter who, who once, when my wife was giving her a bath, bit my wife. And uh, there was no particular reason. Uh, my wife was not being more abusive than she normally is, the same amount. <laughs> she, she's on the very back row with Michael DeWalt, by the way. And so C- Cecilia just looked at Anne and burst into tears. She was cut to the heart. She said, oh, Nina, I'm so sorry. I ate you. There was no reason for her to bite her grandmother. She just did it, but she was, she, bless her tender heart, she was cut to the heart. These people, these thousands of people, by the way, not a few, these thousands of people were listening to Peter's sermon. They were cut to the heart. They were stabbed. They were pierced to the heart. There was deep anguish. The preaching was oriented to that. The preaching was not targeted to end the sermon with some kind of modern parallel that we have in so many sermons, which is, you just go home and think about it. Or, I thought I would just share this for your consideration. No, Peter stabs him in the heart, cuts them in the heart. They were pierced to the heart. The Holy Spirit stabbed these people with conviction of their terrible sin. As Charles Spurgeon says, it is idle to attempt to heal those who are not wounded, to attempt to clothe those who have never been stripped, and to make those rich who have never realized their poverty. The apostolic gospel of grace and the offer of that grace assumes that only after sinners feel that poverty of spirit will they welcome the promise of God's grace in the gospel. And so that leads us to see repentance in Acts chapter 2. Repentance is a turning from the life of sin to Jesus as Savior. Calvin defined it as the true turning of our life to God, a turning that arises from a pure and earnest fear of Him. It consists in the mortification of our flesh, of the old man, and the vivification, the coming to life of the Spirit. Repentance is preached as a part of the gospel of grace. It normally is broken down as having three elements. There's an intellectual component, a change in view in our mind regarding our own personal guilt and defilement and helplessness. Secondly, there's an emotional element in true repentance, a change of feeling in which one feels sorrow for sin, committed against a holy and just God. And thirdly, 
it has a volitional element, a matter of the will. And so repentance and faith, Spurgeon says, are twins. They're born together and they will live together. As long as a Christian is in this world, both will be needed. Repentance is part of the gospel of grace. We are not preaching the whole counsel of God. And in, if, if you go on in, into chapter 3, uh, I'll, I'll emphasize this primarily. But to sum up, before going to this next sermon <clears throat> in chapter 3, when the people were, notice when they were, when they were pierced to the heart, they said, what should we do? The people who heard this sermon didn't want to argue. There was an authoritative declaration, an announcement, a heralding from the king. A better Chiron. A breaking news scroll that said, you have begun with moral guilt. Christ is the propitiation of your sin. You should repent. Turn to him. And believe. And these people were cut to the heart and they said, what do you want us to do? Before moving on to chapter 3, may I just summarize and say, look what Peter places up front in his first sermon in Acts 2. There are the following unpopular parts of preaching today. Guilt, accusation, predestination, and a call for repentance. Maybe if you want your church to grow. Maybe you want to consider how God changed a struggling band of 120 to 20,000 in less than four years. Maybe we should do more preaching on guilt, accusation, predestination, calls for repentance and exaltation of Christ. Go to chapter 3 with me. Peter and John then speak to leaders. And, and don't worry, we're not going to spend this much detail on the sermons. But after, after healing a man, I'm trying to just point these examples to, out to you. After healing a man who had been lame for four decades... When that man comes to, to Peter, Peter speaks to him, and, and he knows the man is interested in physical health and, and wealth, and, and Peter says, silver and gold I don't have, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus to so rise up and walk, and the man was healed. And Peter then reviews the gospel in outline, of course, he begins with the Old Testament fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 35, verse 6. He says, when I have healed you, lame person, for 40 years, known to the community, unaffected, unhealed by any of the medical practitioners, he says, this is a telltale sign to you that Messiah has come and was operating in these disciples. And Peter believes in the same God who was at work, the God who was at work in Abraham and in Isaac and in Jacob. The God of our fathers, he said, has glorified his servant, Jesus and Peter is addressing a group of Jewish listeners that the Messiah, the servant of Yahweh, was Jesus. And this has been verified. And I want you to see in his next sermon now, in Acts chapter 3, four points of his sermon. First comes the declaration of the people's guilt. Their guilt is directly related to the horrible crime of Jesus' death. There are a series of yous placing clear and strong blame on these folks. And although many today are taught that there is little or no place for blame or shame in the gospel, here Peter sure speaks of blame. He shatters the myth of presumed innocence, telling these leaders, 
You handed Jesus over to be killed in verse 13. In Acts 3, verse 13, you disowned him before Pilate, even though he had decided to let him go. It's almost as if Peter so charges these with blame that he nearly lets Pilate off the hook, which would be hard to do. Further, he says, you disowned the holy and righteous one in verse 14. And you asked that a murderer, Barabbas, be released in Jesus' place. And some, you killed the author of life, such as the people's guilt. Calvin comments on this. He begins his sermon, Peter does, with a reproving of the people. He did not think them guilty only because of their wonder, that is their confusion, but he faults them for deficiency and willingness to follow God. They're guilty of error and corruption. Calvin proceeded to aver men must be so stricken that being brought to know their own guiltiness, they may earnestly fly into the remedy of pardon. And yet he still observes a hint of mercy in verse 17, advising preachers today that we so temper our sermons that they may profit the hearers, for unless there be some hope of pardon left, the terror and fear of punishment may harden men's hearts with stubbornness. In Acts chapter 3, Peter's sermon begins with a declaration of the people's guilt. Secondly, the second point in the gospel presentation is the exaltation of the character of Jesus Christ. Again, no gospel presentation is complete without this information. Christ is the center of the gospel. He had just healed this cripple. And now notice how Jesus is portrayed in verse 13. He is called the servant of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Christ is predicted in the Old Testament to be the servant of God. He's the Messiah. Next, he's the holy and righteous one. Reminiscent of those word pictures drawn by the prophet Isaiah. And then he is the author, the archegos, the pioneer, the first leader, the groundbreaker, the author of life, a military term that is used for frontline soldiers. He, the captain of our salvation, led the way into enemy lines, and he also conquered the enemy. He was the first and the last, and we would do a disservice to biblical accounts if we diminish the person and work of Jesus Christ, or if we modernize him into a glorified group therapy counselor who affirms every thought, or who is our Redeemer, but not our King and our Lord, the Jesus whom Peter proclaimed is the one we know. There's the beginning of his sermon with a declaration of moral guilt. Secondly, there's an exaltation of Christ. Thirdly, then comes the but God portion. In most gospel presentations, there is a decided hinge point. After the bad news is declared, and after it is all too clear how desperate is our condition, then comes a moment in which it seems too bleak for life. There is no way we can save ourselves. And then comes the but God portion. But God did something in verse 15 of Acts 3. He didn't leave us in a helpless state in this passage. We see that in in verse 15, although man and all his conspiracies and all his machinations did his collective and his very best to eliminate Christ, the conspirators that Luke recorded in his gospel, directly wanted to extinguish Jesus Christ. And although they were 
successful in murdering him, but God raised Jesus up from the dead. This man proposes, but God disposes motif is frequent in the gospel presentations, and it should be evident in our modern explanations as well. This but God logic is seen throughout the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, in which you followed the ways of this world under the spirit of disobedience, captivated by lust and children of wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy, has raised us up in Christ. Romans chapter 5, scarcely will someone give his life for another, and in that case, and I'm paraphrasing, only when you have esteem for the other or a family member or someone you think perchance is better or equal to yourself. But God shows his love to us in this, while we were yet sinners. Christ died for the ungodly. The sermon begins with a declaration of guilt, followed by an exaltation of Christ. There's a but God hinge, and then fourthly, there's the necessary response of repentance and change in life. In these sermons, in these early church sermons, the gospel of grace calls for repentance often. In the earliest preaching of the gospel, these four points are in full public view. Peter told the church to the listener to repent and be baptized in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Once again in Acts 3, 17, he charitably recognizes that the leaders may have acted in ignorance to some degree, but Peter, confident of the outworking of God's plan, says that all of this was foretold by the prophets, and now this is what the people were to do. They were to repent and turn to God. That is our calling. I'll bring this to a close in just a few minutes. Look briefly at Acts chapter 4. Uh, as I said, we won't <coughs> go into all of these, but in Acts chapter 4 is another sample. And remember that Peter is now standing here in his third sermon appearing before the same kangaroo court that had recently extinguished Christ. He knew what they were capable of. And he begins with this response when they ask him, by what power or what name do you do this? The question may be paraphrased on whose authority are you operating? This is an ecclesiastical question that we would paraphrase today as, who is your licensing presbytery or classes? And Peter quite politely says, rulers, elders of the people. And then he exhibits an uncommon wisdom, arguing that if we are being called to question for the act of kindness shown to this cripple, then we shall certainly answer. And the answer is that he was healed by the name of Jesus Christ, whom, oh, here it is again, by the way, for the record, you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. And Peter gives the gospel, whether that is the question that he was asked or not, on whose authority. The apostles are roundly criticized, but he goes ahead, he speaks of Christ Jesus as the cornerstone, again, drawing on the Old Testament. He speaks of the resurrection of Jesus. That doesn't recede from prominence in the early preaching. That theme is central, the heart and soul of Christianity. It will not fade nor diminish in importance. It will not disappear for these, even those who so ardently wish to eliminate the Christian church. The onlookers accuse Peter 
and John of being uneducated. They were unlettered. And the second insulting term used to them is that they were idiotes, idiots. Peter's short speech here in Acts 4 makes it plain that they must obey a higher authority. He does the same thing in Acts 5, and because of time, we won't go into Acts chapter 7, which is such a thrilling speech by the apostle Stephen. Let me try to summarize some things and draw our time to a close. If you want to know how important the Old Testament was to the early church's preaching, as the defining, as the defining factor of the gospel of grace, in the opening four chapters of the book of Acts, there are 13 separate references to the Old Testament. Brothers, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled, Acts 1.16. The quotation of Acts 69 and 120. And then in chapter 2, Pentecost is explained by reference to Joel 2. Joel, uh, chapter 2, verse 25 is a reference to Psalm 16. Acts 2.34 is a reference to Psalm 110. Acts 3.18 shows how God fulfilled the prophets. Acts 3.22 is a citation of Deuteronomy chapter 18. Acts 3.24 says, indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on have spoken and so on and so forth. There are 13 separate references to the Old Testament in the opening four chapters alone and the entire seventh chapter of the book of Acts is a recounting of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is certainly an important part of the preaching of the gospel of grace. And what did the audience say? If I could just zoom forward to the conclusion of Stephen's speech after he rehearses the Old Testament. And he points out the consistent rebellion. The scene turns angry. No longer will the audience listen patiently. After Stephen rakes them over the coals, he accuses them in verse 51 of Acts 7 of being stiff-necked. He states that their ears are uncircumcised, that they're just like their fathers in terms of willingly resisting the Holy Spirit. They were enjoying, by the way, the narration by Stephen of the great halcyon days of Judaism and its leaders like Abraham, Joseph, and Moses. But when Peter turns to the topic of Christ, they don't enjoy that at all. In fact, he wasn't able to complete his sermon. Stephen accuses these of consistently killing the good guys, the prophets, in verse 52 of Acts 7. They even killed Jesus as a final indictment. And when the preacher got to this point, they interrupted Stephen. They gnashed their teeth and ground them, rejecting the gospel of grace. Sometimes you must know that in preaching of the gospel of grace, your message and your person will be rejected and will be criticized. While the gospel is offered freely, it's not always believed, it's not always loved or embraced. Sometimes as a token of its open offer, it is rejected. The six themes that I've tried to review for you in this presentation are that the Old Testament is cited and cited regularly. The resurrection of Jesus is reaffirmed. The Messiahship of Jesus. Moral guilt of people is chronicled. The call to repent is given and patriarchs excited. Further, the ensuing persecution after Stephen's speech, and I'll, I'll bring this to a close, the ensuing persecution that occurs as Acts chapter 8 opens is a confirmation 
that the gospel of grace was both an overt offer and also that it was succeeding and rooting. That the various oppressor groups begin to forbid the preaching of the gospel is not only a major storyline, but it's an attestation that the apostles were declaring the riches of Christ and such threatened various establishments indicating that the gospel is not only proffered, but received. Else persecution itself was unnecessary. Let's give John Calvin the final word of this address from his commentary on Acts chapter 5, 31, summarizing the remission of sins and reconciliation to the Father, which Calvin said had two parts. The sum of the gospel, he called them. Whereas, wherefore, he adds, the apostles do not only stand upon the defense of their cause, but they preach the office of Christ plentifully, that they may win even some of the mortal enemies of Christ, if it may be. The gospel of grace was proclaimed publicly, promiscuously, persistently, plentifully by the apostles. And such was the gospel of grace preached at its earliest stages after Christ's ascension. May we pray together. We ask you now, O Lord, to take these words, these sermons we've seen, the bold, courageous, and clear preaching of the gospel of grace. And it is our prayer, O Lord Jesus, King and Head of the church, the own sovereign, that you will revive and embolden your church. And we will know that the church of Jesus Christ is not like a snowman that is about to melt under the withering sun, but that is empowered indeed, enlivened by the gospel of grace. May you renew that in every heart here or within hearing audience. And so use us for the glory of your kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.